Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with author and journalist Michael Pollan and host Michael Lerner as they discuss Michael Pollan's new book, How to Change Your Mind. Welcome to you all. Welcome back to so many of you. It's a true joy to have you here. Michael Pollan, welcome back to the new school. Thank you, Michael. Such a joy to have you. Uh, you first came after your first New Yorker piece, uh, uh, the beginning of this book, and I asked if you would come back when the book was finished, and I'm so grateful that you have. And I'm so grateful that Judith is here with you, and a warm welcome to Judith as well. We're just delighted that you Thank here. you. Well, that conversation we had in 2015 was, you know, it was really the first time that I had engaged in that sort of thing on this topic. Um, this, this book began as an article in The New Yorker focusing on the work being done uh, giving psilocybin, guided psilocybin uh, sessions to cancer patients. And so that was kind of the logic that brought me here. And it was such a stimulating conversation that really kind of fed into the process of, mm. of helping me uh, find the book in that topic. Mm -hmm. So I thank you. Um, did you have any expectation that this would be the number one hardback bestseller on the New York Times uh, bestseller? <laughs> no, you, you never have that expectation. You, you don't even dare have that hope. Um, you know, I had written, you know, several best-selling books on food, but, you know, Americans know how to buy a book about food. It wasn't really clear they knew how to buy a book about psychedelics. <laughs> and that was a surprise, I think, to, to me and to the publisher uh, and to everybody involved. Um, it said something, though, about, um, I don't know exactly what it said something about, but certainly a, a willingness on the part of the culture to have a different kind of conversation about psychedelics. Uh, and, a, and, and perhaps something about, you know, the fact that I, I guess I was the right messenger. <laughs> I think you were the right messenger, and I think part of, I mean, let me start by saying, for those of you who haven't read this yet, and most of you will have copies, I, I devote my life to the long read. You know, I read long books, carefully, usually. And this is a magisterial book. This is an extraordinary contribution. How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And um, it, it, it will take you, if you pay attention, quite a while to read this book because it is so rich, so deeply well-researched, so well-crafted. And I think, going back to why you were the right person to write this book, because as an atheist, as a skeptic, as a reluctant, uh, you held that dimension of your persona as the writing persona throughout the book. And even at the end, you're still holding it. Even at the end, there isn't some ascent into a newfound transcendence. Mm -hmm. There is continuing to question and leaving it to the reader to decide what to make of it. Yeah, well, I, I, I was all those things. Uh, I mean, very reluctant uh, in terms of my own psychedelic experiences, uh, which I do detail in the book at some length. And, and I hadn't had them till fairly recently in life. When we met in 2015, I hadn't had these experiences yet. Um, 
And so I think the fact that I was so new to this accomplished a couple different things. I mean, I wasn't thinking this way, but one was it was a, a door that people who are not experienced in psychedelics and uh, might, might never have even occurred to them to try them, that, that here was somebody that could, uh, would, would be a good guide, didn't assume too much knowledge. And because um, most books on the subject are really written by um, people already convinced of their value and uh, from very much inside this camp of, of uh, psychonauts. And, um, and I was writing from outside. I had one foot in, one foot out. And um, so I think that that was definitely helpful. And, you know, when you're writing, uh, we were talking about this in your office, but when you're writing a, a, a first-person book, you know, the, the decision to write in the first person is just the first decision. There then, you then have to, and this will sound weird, you have to figure out which first person am I going to write as? Because you have so many choices, you know, there, you have so many identities, and you have to figure out which one is relevant to the topic. And it's so in that sense, your first person is a very constructed thing, but it's constructed out of real, true materials. You know, I can't write as a woman. Um, so but so you, you sit down and you think, well, what, what do I bring to this? Well, I'm someone who's passionate about nature. I think that was a really important aspect you didn't mention. And, and, and that so much of my interest in the subject flows from this deeper interest in this age-old human, and I think biological human, desire or drive to change consciousness, um, which seems to be universal. And what is that about? And, and, the, and that fact that, it, that that desire drives a relationship with other species. Uh, all of us have used probably a psychoactive plant today to change consciousness. And, you know, I hope in subtle ways, but like, you know, coffee or chocolate, but, but also occasionally in very profound ways. And... Um, so that was part of the identity. The other part was, yeah, I was kind of a newbie uh, and a very reluctant psychonaut. Um, and I bring the skepticism of the journalist. Um, and yeah, I mean, you say atheist. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. Um, but I also, I, I put it a little differently. I, I say in the book that I was kind of, I saw myself as a spiritually retarded person. And, um, uh, and I'm a little less retarded as a result of this. <laughs> <laughs> Commonweal has devoted uh, the last 33 of our 43 years to, uh, in part, but central part, to working with people with cancer. We just did our 201st week-long cancer help program in 33 years uh, last week. Um, and so the eight people who came are still fresh in my mind, and many of them were dealing with profound anxiety. Many of them were dealing with depression. Many of them were dealing with existential end-of-life issues. Um, if you had a close friend, someone you really loved, who was dealing with, who was a skeptic mm -hmm. about this stuff, really quite reluctant to enter into it, and but who was dealing with anxiety, depression, all of those things. Um, and they read your book and said to you, Michael, I've read the book. Um, should I try this? Mm -hmm. What would you say? Uh, yeah, I would, 
you know, I'm, I'm reluctant to recommend any individual yeah. do this. I, I think it's a decision you have to come to on your own. Um, and the people who have success are doing it not because someone told them to, but because they realized either because of out of desperation or curiosity or whatever the motivation. Um, but I, I think it holds enormous potential for people in that in that situation. Um, a lot of what got me interested in exploring the topic deeper was my interviews with cancer patients who were dealing with their mortality and hearing the kinds of experiences that they had, which were so moving. And in many cases, in about two thirds of the cases, really transformative. The research uh, that we discussed last time hadn't been published then, but since then it has. And of the, uh, I think it's a total of about 80 cancer patients who received psilocybin sessions. And these are uh, a single guided psilocybin session where you're prepared by a therapist, two therapists. Uh, they're present with you the whole time. Um, you're wearing eye shades and listening to music to encourage a very inward journey. And afterward, these guides or therapists uh, help you integrate the experience, figure out what it means, and figure out how to apply it to the conduct of your life. That um, two-thirds of the, those people um, had uh, statistically significant reductions in standard measures of depression and anxiety. Uh, the treatment uh, size, the treatment effect size was uh, dramatic, such as we haven't seen in, uh, you know, I, I don't know, any other psychiatric intervention. Um, it was really dramatic. Now, that's a small group. This research needs to be duplicated in larger groups. Um, and then the anecdotal uh, side of it, I mean, the stories people told and told me were um, just remarkable. There's one woman uh, I talk about in the book, uh, Diner Baser, who is a, um, she's 60-ish New Yorker, figure skating instructor uh, who had ovarian cancer. She was treated and it was in remission, but she was, uh, and this is a, a slightly different problem than the one you're talking about, but she was paralyzed by the fear of uh, recurrence. And it really, she could not go about her life. Um, even though she was supposedly cancer-free, she, she just was debilitated by fear. And um, she had had no experience of psychedelics. She uh, entered this program at NYU where, where they were offering this and had an amazing, and she was an atheist, and she had this amazing experience where, like many of the cancer patients, she went into her body imaginatively. And she saw, not her cancer, but she saw this black mass under her rib cage. And she realized what it was. It wasn't her cancer. That wasn't, it wasn't in the right place. It was her fear. And she had confronted her fear. And when she saw it, she screamed out in a way that shocked the two therapists. Because remember, they don't know what's going on in her mind. And she suddenly said, get the f out of my body. And the black mass evaporated. And afterwards, she said that she had realized that though she couldn't control her cancer, she could control her fear. And that making that distinction, figuring out what, what, what can you control and what can't you control, had liberated her. And uh, so in the New Yorker piece that we talked about last time I was here, I wrote um, Dina Baser's uh, fear of death or fear of recurrence was substantially diminished. And uh, some weaselly journalistic word to slide by the fact checkers. 
And she, um, uh, and they called her, the New Yorker fact checkers called her and, and they read her the line and said, is this true? And she said, no, he got it wrong. My fear was extinguished. And, and, I, and I changed it. I happily changed it. Um, but she also said something really weird, which was she said, I felt, in describing her experience, she said, I felt bathed in God's love. And I said, but you told me you were an atheist. And she said, I am an atheist, and I'm still an atheist, but I felt bathed in God's love. I said, how do you write, I mean, you know, William James said the mystical experience is paradoxical, right? Um, this was certainly paradoxical. She said, we just don't have a word big enough for what I felt. God is the biggest word we have, so I'm going to use that word. And that's quite beautiful. So those stories, though, are really what made me realize I needed to have this experience to see what it was about, and that it wasn't enough to you know, relate other people's stories. Beyond cancer, uh, there are all these other things that you discuss, uh, consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, transcendence. Um, but um, let's just take depression and anxiety, which are widespread in the culture, perhaps even... And, and rates of which are growing. Very and quickly. rates of which are growing. Yeah. Uh, so here's a condition that uh, we can medicalize it, yeah. and call it anxiety and depression and medicalize it, but it's an existential condition, mm -hmm. right? So either everybody needs to go get a prescription, mm -hmm. right? Or the culture in some way opens itself up. And you were very interesting on this because you talked about how Hoffer and Osmond, I think, discovered set and setting yeah. as critical dimensions yeah. of this. Even though it wasn't until Timothy Leary that those words were used. Yeah. Uh-huh. But you also talked about how other cultures have safe ritual containers yeah. for these things that we lack. Right? Yeah. So here, is, here, is, here are these molecules um, that are accessible to us, that are being medically tested. And yet, in traditional cultures, they've been used for many thousands yes. of years. Um, how do you see the best way for our culture to open to the potential of these and at the same time create the containers of ritual and yeah. expectation that are safe enough to guide us through what is really very perilous territory, territory yeah. when left just simply open. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, I, when, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book thinking about the lessons of the 60s. And for most people, that is when psychedelics came onto their radar. It came onto the culture's radar in a, in a powerful way, both positively and negatively. Um, when these drugs burst upon the West, and they really did burst upon the West, LSD is, is, is discovered, uh, it's, it's kind of invented in the 30s, but not discovered what it was until the, the 40s when Albert Hoffman has his first uh, LSD trip. And psilocybin doesn't really come to the West until 1957, when um, this very interesting character named R. Gordon Wasson, who was a banker at J.P. Morgan in New York, and an amateur mycologist, goes to Mexico. He's heard rumors from Richard Evans Schultes and others that, that mushroom cults have survived since the Spanish conquest uh, underground, and he finds a curandera who's willing to give him a, a trip, and he writes this 15-page article in Life magazine, which is a stunning piece of journalism, in 1957. So, so suddenly these two molecules appear, but they arrived without much context. They were just drugs, 
And, uh, and they were used that way. And they were often used very carelessly. And the lessons of their, con- their historical context were not offered to us um, for various reasons. First, LSD was new. No one knew what it was um, for a long time. But historically, as you mentioned, for thousands of years, many cultures have used drugs we would call psychedelic, uh, whether it was mushrooms in, in Central America among the Aztecs and, and other um, native populations, or the Greeks, you know, appear to have had a psychedelic that they used at an annual rite uh, called the um, Eleusian Mysteries. Um, There was a, uh, it was called the Kikion. We don't know what was in the potion, but people traveled to other worlds and met the dead and went to the underworld. And so it was, it sounds pretty psychedelic. Um, It wasn't wine. Um, And all these groups who used these substances did it with enormous uh, care and scrupulous attention. They always, there was always an elder involved, right? Somebody who knew the territory who was guiding people who were new. There was always, as you say, ritual and ceremony attached to it. You only did it for at certain points, uh, you know, either to heal someone or because it was an annual ritual. Um, So they had these cultural containers. And I think that's a reflection of their appreciation of the power and dangers of uh, these substances. In fact, it was a capital crime in Greece to have anything to do with the Kikion outside of this one rite once a year. Um, So uh, for us, the molecules kind of arrived unclothed, right? They didn't have this. And... um, and I think that that was part of what led to, you know, the casualties that, that you know, were a real phenomenon in the 60s. Um, although I should say that that's, you know, often exaggerated for political effect. But, I mean, the fact is there were people who had psychotic breaks and things like that. And, and there were a handful of suicides. Um, so the, the job now is, I think, to get back to your question, how do we devise an appropriate container for our culture? Because those cultures, they're, they're not our cultures. We don't have shamans. We have doctors. Um, and so one path we're on is devising a medical container. And that's all this research is on a, is on a traditional FDA track. Phase one, phase two, phase three trials, uh, recognition by the FDA of a med- that this is a medicine, rescheduling. Uh, and there'll be regulations written on to who, you know, who can prescribe these and under what circumstances. And I describe what that protocol looks like. As you suggest, it was, it was really invented in the mid-50s, um, perfected, you could say. But it's the, it's the two therapists in the room. It's um, uh, the, you know, the eye shades, the music, uh, certain kind of preparation, certain kind of integration. It's, it's a psychotherapeutic paradigm. And it's it's important to understand it's not simply the administration of a drug. It's, it shouldn't be called psychedelic therapy. It should be called psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy because it really is a package. Even though when you're doing your FDA test, you play that down because the, their model is for testing a drug. But everyone involved appreciates, I think, the, 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 the critical value of the guide. Um, how those guides should be trained, should they have a license of some kind, should they necessarily be psychotherapists, all that is up for grabs. So there will be this medical container, and um, it will have the, the power of Western shamanism behind it. Because um, the fact is, when, when someone with an MD 
gives you a drug, it's much more likely to work than if I did. Um, and you know, we, there's a lot of power in that, in that white coat. Um, but is that the only container? Do we need another container um, for uh, what one of the researchers memorably called the betterment of well people? Um, and that there is, you know, a lot of the people involved in getting this research off the ground are, and, and even the researchers are, uh, feel strongly that the value of these medicines extends beyond people who are, um, you know, clinically depressed or suffering from cancer or whatever it is, and that we're all facing mortality, um, not just cancer patients. Uh, many, many people are dealing with, with depression or sadness. Uh, the kinds of disconnection that I think are common to, to, um, to depression and addiction and anxiety. And um, so how do you make it available to them? And that's the cultural work that I think needs to be done. Um, I can imagine someday that there might be mental health spas um, where people go and there's a doctor who is the prescribing doctor on staff or on call and, and that there are trained guides of some kind um, who help people have these experiences. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've met people who want to set those up and that may happen. I mean, the fact is, you know, people who are not very ill have access to prescription psych psychoactive drugs, SSRIs, right? I mean, doctors hand those out all the time. Um, and so, and people, people who aren't clinically ill get great benefit from psychotherapy, right? Um, for sadness, for relationship problems, all the reasons people go see shrinks. And those people too may have this available to them because doctors can prescribe off-label once things are approved. So I think it remains to be seen exactly what that container will be. I think that's very exciting cultural work that yeah. will have to yeah. happen. I mean, you know, there are um, oncologists figuring out how to bring this into their practice. You could easily see that at a retreat center like this, you know, if you were working with a doctor who could... Um, organize that kind of experience for people coming to, to your retreats. Um, I think hospices, uh, that it will be something that's um, available there too. Um, all of this is uh, assuming that the next phase of trials, which are gonna be a lot bigger, has results comparable to what we've seen so far, obviously. We're not there yet. We haven't, we haven't proven this to the satisfaction of the FDA. And by we, I mean they. <laughs> Well, that's an actually interesting point that I don't want to dwell on too much, but you know, I wrote my undergraduate dissertation on John Stuart Mill, and one of his fundamental tenets was the right that we have to decide what we do with our own bodies. Mm. It's a fundamental principle of, of English jurisprudence. And I believe, I believe in the right to decide what we do with our own bodies, and therefore I have to interrogate whether the FDA overall uh, in the way it's operated serves us or disserves us to mm -hmm. what degree because it really is an abrogation of our right to decide what we do with our own bodies in many, many ways. You yeah, know? but it protects us too. It protects, it protects us, us from quacks no, and snake oil. It, it does protect us. You know? And then there's the balance 
of those things that it either retards because nobody's going to do the trials because they're natural products or whatever. And they're too expensive. Or they're too expensive. So anyway, that's another subject. I think it is a question. I mean, you know, so what about outright legalization? Um, my, my concern, I mean, there's, there's, there are good arguments in favor of legalizing drugs. I mean, it's very interesting to watch the experience in Portugal, which is actually not legalization, it's decriminalization. Yeah. And if you want to read about a model, that's an interesting one to look at. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know that the cannabis model is right for drugs this powerful. I really don't. And, um, you know, from my experience, I think that, that there is a place for greater regulation. Um, now, you, it, the interesting problem with prohibition is you can't have regulation, right? It's kind of everything or nothing goes. Um, whereas if you do legalize, you can regulate. You know, who has access to these drugs, what kind of training might be required. And that's probably what we need. Um, but I, I think that right now the path we're on, um, I, you, know, I, you know, people are trying to put psilocybin on ballot initiatives. I think that's a mistake right now. I don't think enough, enough people even know what it is. Um, and, and, you know, when you do something prematurely, you lock politicians into positions that becomes very hard for no, them to get out. No, I think that's really I mean, think about, you know... Uh, Obama and, and gay marriage, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, when that first came on, politicians had to take negative positions that they then took a lot of work for them to unwind. So I think the fact is, I mean, the, the important thing to know is the FDA has been remarkably supportive of this research, um, which I think is probably a recognition of uh, the desperation of the mental health community for some new tools. Because the tools that they have now are showing their, you know, are a little threadbare. The SSRIs are fading their effectiveness. People don't like being on them. They're, they're, the side effects are really serious, and they're very hard to get off. Um, and their effectiveness is, is uh, you know, is, is questionable. Um, they, they definitely help some people uh, for certain periods of time. So that, and, and the big pharma is not developing new CNS drugs. Um, they're not, they're disinvested in central nervous system drugs. So here comes this, from out of left field, these nonprofits essentially, who are promoting the research, um, MAPS, which is tabling downstairs, and Hefter Institute and USONA Institute, all with private money, by the way. Big pharma is not paying for any of this research. Um, and that, uh, that the, and that the, the money has been raised, in a lot of it from the tech community in the Bay Area, um, but from other people as well, that um, they're open. They're surprisingly open. And why should that be? Well, it is the desperation. And I also think, frankly, you know, and this is the positive legacy of Timothy Leary, that uh, enough people in positions of power have had psychedelic experiences that they don't react as they did 30 or 40 years ago. And that without doubt, there are people, you know, drug regulators at the FDA who've, you know, tripped. And um, <laughs> this, this influences their, their reactions. There are so many narratives woven into this book. The accidental discoveries, whether in the lab or, as you mentioned, in uh, Mexico, the progress of science and the initial openness, the great repression, the distorted Timothy Leary narrative, the science that continued after the Great Repression began, the formation and maintenance of the uh, psychedelic underground, the story of MAPS and other organizations and their dogged pursuit of recovery of the promise, 
how psilocybin disables the ego and creates these death-rebirth experiences, the many forms of psychedelics, the role of psychedelics in jump-starting neuropsychiatric studies. But I'd like to start with one of my favorites, or go to one of my favorites, the stoned ape theory. What was that all about? <laughs> you went to the least plausible part of the whole book. Uh, <laughs> well, Terrence McKenna, how many people have heard of Terrence McKenna? Oh my God, <laughs> only in Bolinas. <laughs> I could ask that question any other place and I'd get a smattering of hands. So Terrence McKenna was a very uh, charismatic, um, uh, in many ways brilliant psychonaut uh, who had many theories about psychedelics and their role in, in human evolution, um, all of which are highly speculative. Uh, to be generous, and one of them is this, and one of them is this, and you can hear, you should go on YouTube and just spend an hour watching Terrence do his thing. Um, uh, and the stoned ape theory is uh, his theory that it was um, magic mushroom, psilocybin, that really kick-started the uh, human consciousness and language and just about everything you could think of that you like about humanity. Um, and, uh, and the theory was that um, people who, that we discovered psychedelics very early on, and in fact, there are apes who like psychedelics and eat magic mushrooms when they can find them, and that it gave us an edge. People who took them had an edge. They were slightly better hunters. At low doses, their, their sensory acuity was better. So this may be the preference. Um, but, but the experience it had on their minds was um, that his theory was that language was a form of synesthesia. Synesthesia is the cross-wiring of different senses, so that when you can smell a musical sound or see a note, you know, that's synesthesia. And it's a very common uh, experience on psychedelics. Um, and he, he said language was a special case of synesthesia. You had this meaningless noise, um, noise, uh, and then you connected it to a concept, and it was the drug that allowed you to connect it. Um, and that's the stoned ape. Uh, and language leads to the growth of the human brain and, and um, uh, self-consciousness. Um. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. I have an easier time imagining that psychedelics contributed to cultural evolution than biological evolution. The, the one thing I can't follow, and maybe other people can follow it better than I can, is how these changes would uh, end up in the genome. Um, that the selective pressure, that the, the people who had had this experience uh, were so much more successful. <sighs> I just don't see it. Um, but, you know, I think in terms of cultural evolution, I think psychedelics may well have played a, a profound part. Um, you know, an, a, another theory that McKenna held, but a lot of other people held too, is that um, psychedelics are, uh, may have been involved in, in the whole idea of religion or the whole idea that there is another world, uh, a beyond. Where do you get a weird idea like that? Um, you know, that there is a heaven and a hell. And um, uh, many people on psychedelics have emerged with the sense that, oh my God, this world as it presents it to our sense, senses in everyday normal consciousness is not the only world. Um, that's a core idea of so many religions. Um, and that the mystical experience occasioned by psychedelics is at the core of 
so many religions. I, I find that completely plausible, totally improvable, unprovable, but, but um, plausible. So, so I do think they have a role. I think, I, I think of drugs like psychedelics, but other ones too. I think this is true of opium. I think it's probably true of cannabis is that there are, I think of them as mutagens in, in the cultural sense. Um, if, you, if you accept the idea that, you know, there's a, uh, there are genes here and then there are memes here in culture, um, what, what mutates a meme? Um, we know what mutates a gene, solar radiation, chemi chemicals and things like that, pure chance. Um, but drugs do mutate memes. You know, uh, Coleridge's idea of, of the secondary consciousness, uh, uh, secondary imagination. Had, there were two ideas of imagination. One is uh, a distortion of what is as a producer of new ideas and beauty and things like that. You know, that idea very much owes to his dabbling in, or more than dabbling in opium. Um, so I think that there, so that, that's, I think that's, I'm, I'm more comfortable looking at cultural evolution rather than biological evolution, but who knows? I mean, maybe. Well, there's genetics, but then there's epigenetics. Yeah. And, and epigenetics is the place to... where culture and right. genetics mix. And in fact, you know, it's really the inheritance of acquired characteristics is what epigenetics right. is beginning to re-demonstrate after, yes. you and know, hundreds of years of dismissal. not as distinction as we think. Right. And but that language yeah. could be inherited through epigenetics. I don't know. Have we, do we have any evidence of that? No, but your, your, your broader point, which is that there's a whole set of animals, not just apes, yeah. that like to ingest these yeah. things. Yeah. And therefore, it's not just human. It's a whole set yeah. of, of critters yeah. that like to do this. And it, and it would seem maladaptive, right? Because you, right. you are somewhat debilitated. Right. You're more, you're right. easier prey, right, right, for your predator. Nevertheless, right. this is very common. So right. it must have... If it hasn't, I mean, if we haven't acquired an, an aversion right. to these drugs, they must have some adaptive value. Right. And I think they do have adaptive value for, for individuals and for cultures. Yeah. Now, McKenna's theory of the stoned ape was continued by a most remarkable man, Paul Stamets, who you spent some time I did. with. Yeah. And let's talk a little about Paul Stamets. For one thing, he. How many people have heard of Paul Stamets? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I will tell him. So Paul is a visionary mycologist uh, who, when I decided I was going to look at psilocybin closely, you know, I'm always interested in the natural history of whatever I write about. I mean, I, I, my, my master theme is, is nature and our engagement with the natural world. So when I, was, when I realized psilocybin was going to be at the heart of this book, I wanted to learn about the mushroom. And Paul Stamets uh, wrote the, literally wrote the book on psilocybin. In the late 70s, he writes a field guide to psilocybes. There are about 150 to 200 different uh, species of mushrooms that produce uh, psilocin and um, psilocybin, the two chemicals uh, in it. And so we went mushroom hunting together. I wasn't sure he was open to this. He's kind of like, he has, a, he has a company now. He's kind of, you know, he's doing all this uh, straight ahead research into the, you know, how to apply mushrooms to solve. I mean, he believes that mushrooms really can solve all the world's problems. And uh, he makes very large claims for mushrooms, which I always thought were like, come on. But actually, if you go one by one through the various claims he's made, they, they hold up. Um, <laughs> that's the thing with these visionaries, you know. Um, and um, so I said, could we go mushroom hunting together? 
And, uh, and we did. And we, we spent this wonderful weekend in, uh, I can't tell you where he made me promise not to, but <laughs> somewhere near the mouth of the Columbia River where there is a species of uh, psilocybe um, called azurescence. Uh, it's the only place that's ever been found. And it was found by him and identified by him and written up by him and named by him for his son, Azurius, who in turn was named for the color that psilocybin mushrooms bruise. <laughs> so it's a, this weird sort of circular naming. Um, we need a word in English for that. Um, and we went hunting for these, and it's, it's the, the, the most potent psilocybe known uh, ever. And, um, and so we went hunting and uh, we found some. Not a great number, but we found them. Um, I learned from that experience never to hunt my own philosophies, that there are ones that look exactly like them that lead to, as the field guides say, an agonizing death. <laughs> so you want to be careful. There are certain kinds that grow in like cow patties and stuff that are pretty easy to identify, but not, not these. So yeah, so we had a, we had a wonderful um, weekend. Uh, and I was very excited when we found them. And, and then as we were having dinner around the campfire, um, we also went uh, hunting for razor clams, uh, which we found. Um, he said, yes, not everybody likes them. They're, they're a little too strong for some people. I said, oh, yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, they have a side effect some people don't like. I said, what is that? Paralysis. <laughs> I said, I can see why people would, like, be troubled by that. And he said, he said it goes away, but... <laughs> So anyway, I learned a lot about mushrooms from him. And he has uh, Alex Gray painting of the stoned ape in his, in his house. And uh, he was incredibly generous with his knowledge and great company, too. If you ever have a chance to hear him speak, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, so uh, psilocybin uh, also has the characteristic, according to Stamets, that it shows up at places that the earth has been wounded by human habitation. Yeah shows up at the edge of parking lots at where there are Winnebago's, you may find psilocybin. Yeah. It shows he said, up he in said at one point, this is the only time I've ever heard Paul Stamets make a joke. He's a very earnest person. He said, one of the indicator species for psilocybin are Winnebago's. <laughs> <laughs> and we did find some. They were, you know, I thought we'd have to go into the wildest places, but they were like right near the yurts and the parking lots and things like that. And, why is that? Because people carry them around. And you know, whenever you carry a mushroom, you are trailing uh, spores, right? They're invisible, but they're always there. Is so, it because people carry them around? Well, people pick them and move them. And so they end up being where we are. They're, I mean, they're, in that sense, they're weedy. You know, they're one of those species that uh, benefits from our engagement with them. And, the reason that you find these philosophies now all over the world has to do with the fact that people have probably moved them. Okay, so it isn't because they like to live, like you said, some species show up in cow pies, for example. Yeah, that's a, yeah there's certain species that that's what they need. But I wonder if it's kind of the, you know, uh, like the lotus blooming out of, uh, you, know, you know, dirty water and stuff. I wonder whether... I'm, I'm open to the fact that it's because people carry them around, but I wonder whether they selectively do best in degraded environments. Yeah, uh, I don't know that. They yeah. may be. I mean, Paul really thinks that they're a message from nature for us. Well, that's why that, I wonder. Yeah, and that um, 
One of the things these mushrooms do to people is, is change your thinking about the natural world. And I, and I definitely had that experience. Um, we uh, ingested some of these um, psilocybe azurescence, uh, not enough to get paralyzed. Um, <laughs> I'd be glad to hear. And, um, and I had a very profound experience of, of nature in my garden. Um, we were in Connecticut. And um, one of the things that psychedelics do, I think, is change your sense of the subject-object relationship. And instead of thinking, as most of us do, as most of our egos do most of the time, that we are the only thinking, perceiving subject, everything else is an object, including other people, um, for some of us, um, that, that you are acutely aware of the subjectivity, uh, the fact that other species, the fact that plants have their own point of view and agency. And they don't have consciousness the way we do, but they have an awareness of their environment, ability to respond. And these are ideas I understood intellectually. I'd, I'd written about plant intelligence before. I'd written in Botany Desire, a, a plant's eye view of the world is the subtitle of that book. So I, I understood this as an idea, but I never felt it. Uh, it was not an idea that had that kind of emotional power for me. And it did on this experience. And um, it's very hard to objectify nature after a psychedelic experience, I think, if, if that's been your focus in the experience. And, um, and you know, that's, that's our problem. You know, I mean, in, in terms of the environmental crisis, that disconnection from nature, the fact that we can treat it as an object for our exploitation, extraction, um, uh, you know, the fact that we can take animals and put them into confinement agriculture situations, you know, that kind of brutality flows from not according uh, the pig any subjectivity, any spirit, right? And, um, and this isn't just my experience. This is very common. In fact, it's been measured. The psychologists have, of course, a rating scale for everything, uh, and they have one for nature-relatedness, uh, and that is the extent to which you feel you're part of nature or standing outside of nature. And if you, if you give that scale to somebody before and after a psilocybin experience, as has been done at Imperial College in London, nature-relatedness goes up quite a bit. Um, and so... In that sense, Paul's right. I mean, that the mushrooms are bringing us a message from nature. Um, I mean, that's a kind of poetic way to put it, but um, they have the potential to reset people's attitudes toward the natural world. Now, whether that's enduring or temporary is, is a question, and um, I think they have a huge implication for other problems like that. I mean, you know, I really think the two biggest problems we face are the environmental crisis, which flows from this disconnection from nature, and the other would be tribalism, which flows from a disconnection with other people. They're very similar uh, phenomena. Uh, and an objectification of other people that allows you to um, uh, detest them or build walls against them or all the things that you know, we see happening right now. And that we also see that the kinds of connections that uh, a high-dose psychedelic experience, and I'm talking about one where ego defenses are eliminated, um, which is what seems to happen in the people who have the most successful outcomes, um, that that opens up channels through which emotions like love flow more freely and makes people feel that they're more like the other than they ever realized before. 
So we can all think of someone who could benefit from this sort of experience. You know, like you, I, I uh, did psychedelics twice in my life, once uh, in New Haven, <clears throat> LSD, and once in my early years out here, 43 years ago with psilocybin. And they were both good experiences. Um, but then the last 40 years or more, I haven't I barely touched cannabis either. And part of that for me <clears throat> is that I like, I'm deeply interested in spiritual life, but I like my spiritual life to be earned as opposed to, you know, in pill form or whatever. Uh, at the same time, because I keep thinking about whether I want to try this again, mm -hmm. and I haven't done it, and after, having read your book, I still don't know if I want to mm. do it. But, uh, but your book uh, made me interrogate that question more. And so you mentioned that Stamets sees these as uh, psilocybin as, as messengers from God or nature. Mm -hmm. Spinoza said God is nature. So, mm -hmm. um, And so the question really is, because you say, as you say, it's environment and tribalism that are biggest issues, but I happen to be spending time looking at the question of civilizational collapse and the mm -hmm. whole range of 15, 20, 30 different vectors uh, you know, environmental, political, economic, social, all of them mm -hmm. uh, taking this very, very um, uh, uh, fragile civilizational structure that we've created, and any set of combinations mm -hmm. could really bring it down, could really bring it down. And then suddenly, in this relatively brief period of historic time, these molecules show up. Mm -hmm. One of them invented but the other ancient. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the question, the, the metaphysical question really is, are these, um, are these messengers? Mm -hmm. um, and Stamets seems to me to be an example of that. And you point out that, is the word fungi, is that how you say the plural? I think plural so, fungi, fungi or fungi, yeah. yeah. Um, you point out that actually we have more in common biologically with fungi than we do with the vegetable kingdom. And that they have this ability to um, enter us at a very deep level. So uh, the question, you know, I'd like to spend our, our last uh, 10 minutes on in some way is not that I expect that you will endorse that perspective yeah. because I don't think you would and I'm not sure it would do any good. But as a cultural meme, let us say, mm -hmm. as a cultural meme, as a container, imagine that we created a cultural container that said, under the right circumstances, these really are messengers because our situation, I mean, leave aside our present political situation, since it's happening all over the world, it's not just the United States. Right. Are these, are these messengers? And do they have agency, mm -hmm. as you put it? And are they inviting us to a collaboration to find the best way out? Mm. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. Right. Um, 
I would I would not call them I'd be I would not call them messengers I would call them tools mm-hmm. tools that may have come along at just the right time mm-hmm. as tools often do mm-hmm. um, and that they they happen to address a lot of the most acute problems we face but they do that in individuals mm-hmm. and there's it's a it's a huge leap to go from treating individuals to treating mm-hmm. a civilization uh, or even a community. Um, and this was something that, you know, people grappled with in the 60s. I mean, you know, Timothy Leary was working out calculations on napkins about how many people you would have to turn on to actually shift the course of civilization. And, you know, even the researchers, the very sober researchers I interviewed here, will tell you if you get them, you know, out for a drink, um, that, that these drugs do have implications at the civilizational level. But how do you get there? Um, We don't really have a model for treating everybody. Um, Fluoride is the closest thing we have. Um, Putting this in the water seems ill-advised for all the reasons we were talking about earlier. So I I just don't know. I think it's incredibly intriguing. I'm I'm really struck by the fact that they they do seem to have, our our interest in them is blossoming again at a time when we are in this incredible moment of crisis. Um, And that they can help us think about it and and not just think about it, but feel about it differently. Um, And so... One of the big debates in the 60s and the 50s was people, when LSD came along, people had the same thought you just had, which was that, oh my God, this is what we need. This could change civilization. I tell the story of before Timothy Leary, Al Hubbard, um, this you know, Christian mystic, spy, inventor, rum runner, a very, I mean, you'll read about him. He's, he's the most interesting character in the history of, he makes Leary's story seem boring. Um, <laughs> He, he too realized that, the, and he had gotten a message from an angel who told him that he could get involved with something that was going to change the course of civilization. But his theory was turn on the elite, mm-hmm. right? Turn on the best and the brightest and let this consciousness filter down. Mm-hmm. So he gave it to computer engineers and artists and people in the church, in the Catholic church. And Leary was more of a populist. He was like bottom up. Um, they both, you know, I mean, neither succeeded finally um, in that. But th- that's the hard work that, you know, we, we have this tool. It's highly relevant to tasks we need to achieve, uh, accomplish. But how do we best use it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and, it's, and there, I, I don't know. I'm, it's I'm funny really that you prefer the word tool, having said earlier that these plants have their own consciousness and their own agency. So it's just interesting to me that you prefer the tool meme Mm -hmm. to the messenger meme since they do have consciousness and agency according to your perception. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I think their agency is, is, uh, as far as I know, is kind of more about reproducing themselves, yeah. succeeding in nature, getting more habitat, yeah. doing all the things that corn has, yeah. for example, done. Yeah. Um, but whether their agency includes changing the minds of the species that's f***ing up their habitat, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful idea, but 
you know, you started by describing me as an atheist and a skeptic, and um, uh, that's who I am. <laughs> well, it's interesting on my part, too, because I'm actually a skeptic about uh, whether turning a whole bunch of people on would, ser- would change the civilization, although that percent, interestingly, uh, researchers think is about 3.5% of really? the population. Yeah, that's the figure that if 3.5% of the population become deeply committed to a social change idea, it tends to happen. That's well, we have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but part of my issue with that is that when I look at the people who have done a lot of this stuff, I don't regularly notice that they're much better human beings <laughs> after than before. You know? I mean, some so, of them, some of them are, but an awful lot of them aren't. aren't. You know, they've had. So this these, is another paradox yeah, of yeah. psychedelic experience um, that this drug, which at high doses is, is often correlated with, sometimes it's called the mystical experience. Uh, in more psychodynamic terms, is the dissolution of ego, yeah. has produced some tremendous e- egotists. Yeah. And and so there's something that happens. I mean, Leary is a great example. Um, you. Feel, I think that you've been given a, a precious key to the meaning of everything, mm-hmm. and that leads to an ego inflation, even if that key was the ego is your problem. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's a paradox. It definitely is a paradox. Yeah. And uh, but I, but I take your point. Um, you know, speaking of cultural containers, I I gave a talk this morning at the Integral Yoga Institute in San Francisco on the three yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. And I was researching that, and I was doing this this afternoon, and I thought, gee, I wonder if uh, Arjuna's vision of Krishna in his full beauty, which looked a lot like an entheogenic psychedelic experience, uh, wasn't induced by entheogens. So I googled it, and lo and behold, there's a whole theory that the Gita is, in fact, an entheogenic uh, vision. And I asked Swami Ramananda, who runs the Integral Yoga Institute, how widespread this view is. And he says, yeah, it's in the, it's in the sutras. The, you know. so, and, and then you said uh, about... There's a lot of buried psychedelic use there's in a the lot history of, buried, of religion. And you yeah. said you know, that the Christian, uh, uh, the Christian benediction of blood and uh, the, the body of Christ, the cup of salvation, is sort of a, a watered-down version of, of that yeah, experience. Yeah. So I wonder, and I just wonder whether, um, I mean, we live in a period of the apotheosis of doubt, right? Mm-hmm. The doubt has become our default, that if we're, you, I, are designed, trained to doubt, mm-hmm. right? Um, but I wonder if a return not to belief in the cognitive sense, perhaps not even to faith in the deeper sense, but to trust in the mm-hmm. deepest sense, I wonder whether some return to trust in, in, the, in the healing power of nature mm. and that the way out. And then that brings me back to wonder whether nature itself, even though I'm skeptical about tripping our way out of this, but whether that communion, which you said is characteristic of mm-hmm. uh, the psilocybin experience, whether that deep communion with nature, the trust, might somehow reorient us, mm. might somehow take us away from the apotheosis of doubt back into a recognition that, you know, 
nature is beautifully designed and it has agency. Mm-hmm. And perhaps somehow with prayer, this might reorient it. Let me say two things about that. First, I think you should re-examine your idea that drugs uh, represent a form of cheating compared to the hard work of meditation and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's assumptions built into that that Mm -hmm. are a little bit Puritan. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I, you know, it is a shortcut in that sense. Mm -hmm. And it's been a shortcut for a lot of people that has has kicked off the hard work of meditation and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But... That doesn't change the nature of the experience. I don't think it makes one better or worse. Houston Smith wrote, wrote about this quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, it's for all intents and purposes, it's indistinguishable. A mystical experience achieved using a molecule versus. And that, and Aldous Huxley wrote about this too, that, that whatever that hard work experience is, is, is finally a neurochemical experience mm-hmm. in the brain. And there are many ways to get there. Um, but we, we assume that the, the, the harder you work, the more legitimate the experience is. So just raising that as a question. That's helpful. Um, I take that. On the on the trust issue, I think that's really interesting to use the word trust and not faith. Um, one of the things that in the preparation sessions that happens uh, is that you are encouraged to trust and to surrender to the experience, mm-hmm. which is the hardest thing for people to do. So what the guides will tell you at the beginning is that when you see anything frightening, don't turn and run from it. Um, it, the worst thing you could do, if you feel you're going crazy, if you feel you're dying, if you feel your s- sense of self dissolving, go with it, surrender, trust. Uh, and that's the key to a positive experience. And there's one person I interviewed in the book who was a, a philosopher at Johns Hopkins, I think. And he, he, was, he played with this idea during his experience. And he was having these very kind of frightening moments and there are moments where anxiety builds and you see something really terrifying. And, and resistance leads to a lot of anxiety during the experience. If, you're, if you try to defend your ego as it's dissolving, you'll, you'll be very unhappy. But he realized that this whole principle of surrender was a life principle, not just a technique for getting through a, a psychedelic experience. And that that sort of trust in what was happening to him, in, in, in what the mushroom was doing to him, um, was a really important takeaway for him. And, and that was his, that's what he tried to apply to his life and his philosophy. Mm. Um, so I think, that's a, I think that's a really intriguing idea. Well, I take your first point. And the second point is, of course, that surrender, complete surrender to the divine and the dissolution of ego is also at the heart of the spiritual path. For me, the big yeah. change, I mean, what I, the, my transformation yeah. intellectually came from my understanding of what spiritual means. Yeah. I had always assumed spiritual and supernatural were yeah. very closely yeah. allied and that on the other side was material, yeah. materialism. And that to have, and the reason I was so spiritually retarded, as I said at the beginning, was the fact that I just don't accept the supernatural. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to think the laws of nature will at some point be able to explain everything. And, um, but what I learned from my own experience, and I had one very profound experience of ego dissolution, um, where I, my sense of self just completely, you know, was gone. And, uh, and I beheld the world from a different perspective that wasn't my ego, um, was that the, the opposite term of, um, Spiritual was not material, it was egotistical. 
And it is ego consciousness that prevents the kind of profound connections to the other, whether it's other people through love or nature uh, through a sense of absolute kinship, that it's the ego that patrols those borders and, and that uh, keeps us from making those connections. Um, and that when you can actually put down those barriers, those defenses, is when the spiritual connections flow. And that, and that was like, oh, that's what spiritual yeah. is, at least for me. Yeah. And that was, that was an important learning. And, and uh, you know, I do have the psilocybin to thank for that. Yeah. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. Um, I will wait to thank you until the end, but at this point, uh, and I thank you, but um, I'd like to open this up and we will ask people who'd like to ask you questions uh, to line up um, to do that. Um, I, I think I will stand for that. Yeah, Tina, you're first. I would be so interested to hear you cross-reference Eilat Waldman's A Really Good Day and Johan Hari's Lost Connections. Who, what was the second name? Johan? Johan Hari, Lost Connections. Oh, I don't know that book. Oh, 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 yes, the book on depression, yes. Well, and anxiety. And yes, yeah. I haven't read that book. Um, I've read his work on addiction. I think he's a really interesting writer. Yes. So Ayelet Waldman wrote a book last year called A Really Good Day, and she's writing about microdosing and her experience. Microdosing is the use of, I won't ask how many people have heard of microdosing. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, it's a very different approach to psychedelics uh, where you take a, a small uh, dose, like 10 micrograms, which is like a tenth of a moderate dose, every couple days. And, or you do it with psilocybin. And it's not enough to render you um, ineffective in your everyday life, um, but supposedly is very helpful to people dealing with depression and anxiety and makes them more, people report feeling much more creative and a little adds a little sparkle to life. Um, it's really intriguing, the anecdotes, and her anecdote is very powerful, that it really was healing for her, and it, it's a book well worth reading. Um, but it's important to note that like, there is absolutely no research on microdosing. Uh, there's never been a, a controlled trial. There, there are a couple that are contemplated now that may get underway soon and we'll get a lot more information, but it could be purely a placebo effect or it could be something, you know, meaningful. Um, it strikes me as, an, as a um, classic uh, fate for, a, for um, you know, what, it, it's what capitalism does with a drug as disruptive and transformative as LSD, which is to turn it into another productivity drug, uh, like, like Ritalin or, you know, SSRIs or whatever, just, you know, drugs that allow people to function more in the system as it is, rather than questioning the system as it is. But okay, you know, you can have both. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, so I, I didn't give it, I talk about it in the book, but not at great length, because I really did try to stay, um, uh, d deal with the science. Um, and everything I'm writing about is stuff we do have surprisingly good research about. Um, well, my question is that uh, back in the 60s when I did more psychedelics, my experience was always, you know, visual. That's what I remember going forward. 
And one experience was actually drawing and seeing the line from my pen just continue the drawing as I stood there watching this still pen, which affected me hugely. And today I think it's like I still remember that experience when I get caught with, you know, you can't do this or that fear factor. So I wondered if those kind of experiences really transform us at that moment going forward. What, you know, those very particular ones, like the woman in her with her dark spot. Yeah. You know? So what indoors you mean? So if, the, if that, in, in effect, is something that is invited in, um, let's say, a transformative experience for someone, is that a factor? Is that talked about? Is, is that visual yeah. understanding? Just like when you were talking about the, um, uh, the communion with nature, I remember that aura yeah. around leaves that were alive, and that, that picture is what stays with me. So yeah. maybe you could just so, talk a little bit about the visual. Yeah, so a, a couple points about visuals. One is that um, the guided experiences tend to be somewhat less visual in that you're wearing eye shades and you're not dealing with visual information coming in. It's all imagined or previously experienced visual imagery. Nevertheless, there is sometimes very powerful um, visual material. I, I had a couple uh, experiences on ayahuasca that were what remains of them is a couple images um, and that they're almost like visual koans that I think about a lot because I don't know what they mean. It's like yours. I mean, that sounds like a kind of stunning experience. I had this experience. I was doing ayahuasca in a situation where traditionally you do it overnight and it's dark and it's, it should be dark, but we had to start before it got dark and so we were wearing eye shades. And the bands on these eye shades, these black eye shades, were very tight, and I could feel them on my temple. And gradually, they turned into steel bars, and the bars multiplied, going all the way down my body. And I was, I was trapped in this like steel cage that corseted me very tightly, and it was potentially a terrifying image. And then I looked down, and I saw at my feet this little green shoot, and this plant, this vine, starts winding up along the bars, using the bars in a positive way, right, to get access to the sunlight, and showing me a way out. But it wasn't a way I could follow. And, and I kept thinking, well, only plants can't be caged. Only animals can be caged. You can tell me what that means. So do you, think, <laughs> do you think the visual was something you would take forward easier than a, let's say, awareness or revelation? Yeah. I mean, one of the theories of psychedelics uh, that uh, a Brazilian neuroscientist offered to me that I mentioned in the book in passing, and we, don't, we can't prove this, is that um, you see your thoughts um, very often. And one of the curious things that we know from neuroscience is that whether you're seeing me now or remembering seeing me tomorrow, this exact same circuits in your visual cortex are activated which suggests something is suppressing your ability to see me tomorrow. Mm. That, that we yeah. should be seeing yeah. our thoughts all the time, yes. but, but it would be impossible to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about how yeah. maladaptive that would be. So that there's something repressing our ability to see our thoughts and our memories in this very vivid way. Mm -hmm. And that psychedelics may release that. Mm. It's an Thank interesting you. theory. Thank yeah, you. sure. Hi. Um, Two things, the, the, the MAPS program, which works with, um, in similar ways with therapy, except they use MDMA. Yeah. And then um, with the program now you're talking about is with uh, psilocybin. What I'm wondering, within the realm of PTSD, which both of them speak to and work with, 
Just your thoughts. Sure, trauma. So MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, the organization that's tabling downstairs, has focused their work, uh, Rick Doblin founded it in 1986, has focused their work on MDMA or ecstasy, um, which is a um, powerful therapeutic drug that was used, in fact, commonly in therapy, especially in the Bay Area, until it was made illegal. It became a party drug. In, in 1985, it was made illegal. Um, the qualities of MDMA are somewhat different than, um, than psychedelics. I, I don't consider it a psychedelic. Rick considers it a psychedelic. But he considers almost everything a psychedelic, um, including cannabis. Um, but it works on a different set of brain receptors. And uh, the experience is, I'm told, different. I've never, I've never tried it. Um, it's particularly useful in dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder because it appears to, to deactivate the fight-or-flight response. And then it allows people to take very painful memories out and look at them without the emotional charge that's gotten attached to them. And then when they store them again or reconsolidate them, some of that charge has been lost. And I've seen videotapes of uh, MAPS studies uh, with, with soldiers, um, uh, Iraqi and Afghan war veterans, um, where people bring out their most traumatic memories. And they have had terrific success uh, in, a, in a fairly large phase two study. Two-thirds of the trauma victims that they worked with after uh, two or three sessions on MDMA with a psychiatrist um, no longer had symptoms of PTSD on, you know, on the scale of PTSD symptoms. That's amazing. We don't have another tool like that. So that, that research is now moving into phase three, um, and that'll start this summer. Uh, and of all these alternative therapies using these illegal drugs, that will probably be the one that will be approved first. Because the need is so acute uh, for soldiers, for victims of sexual abuse, um, and, the, uh, and it appears to be very, very effective. Trauma does uh, come up with other uh, psychedelics too. I've talked to people who on ayahuasca in particular um, will often surface forgotten traumas, which can make the experience um, difficult. Uh, and that's, that's another argument, at least when you're doing these high dose experiences for having a guide, because who knows what's gonna come up and you might need help dealing with it. Yes. On behalf of uh, my sister, um, I wonder if you have any information on uh, uh, psychedelic uh, trials or even anecdotes that relate to uh, Alzheimer's and other uh, dementias. Yeah, so there's, a, there's some talk about doing some studies around psychedelics and dementia uh, and Alzheimer's. Nothing's really gotten off the ground yet. There was a research study that was published last week in Cell magazine that had some very provocative findings um, that uh, psychedelics, uh, including psilocybin, LSD, MDMA too in this study, I think, um, encouraged the branching of brain cells. Additional neurites and dendrites were formed. Now this was, done, this was found in mice or rats and fruit flies and in test tubes. So it's a long way from being proven in humans, but it's very suggestive. And that there is a, in depression I know, and this is probably true in dementia too, there's, there's a, a, a pruning, an over pruning of connections between neurons. And so that if something, something like this could contribute to neuroplasticity, that, that might suggest some pathways for new drugs. 
Um, but it's all still in a very speculative place, but there are definitely people thinking about the question you're thinking about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, this has been fantastic. Um, I'm a doctor of Chinese medicine, and thinking of um, psychedelics as a therapy or as a medicine moving forward, you would say that there are not many good examples. Um, what guidelines or what elements would you hope the healthcare industry considers as we move to the coming years? Well, you know, I mean, I, I encourage them to be open to it. I mean, the psychiatric establishment, you know, still, you know, there was somebody did a survey recently of psychiatrists, and a lot of their thinking about psychedelics is kind of stuck in, you know, circa 1965. Um, I described an, a psychedelic experience of my own in an article in the New York Times three or four weeks ago, and a, and a psychiatrist, a prominent psychiatrist from the University of Pennsylvania wrote in to warn people because you could have a, a, um, a psychotic episode like Michael Pollan did. And, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, if you think about psychedelic experience through the lens of diagnostic criteria for psychosis, you could easily be fooled, right? You're seeing things that aren't there. You're hearing voices that aren't there. Your personality is dissolving. Yeah, it sounds like psychosis, but it's not. So what does that tell you? Well, look at your criteria. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of thinking um, that, that's going on. So I think open-mindedness. There are other people in the field, though, that are um, uh, much more open. In general, there are people who've had the experience. And, you know, when, when psychedelics first came on the scene, people called them psychotomimetics in that they, they seem to mimic psychosis. On paper, it's certainly what it looked like. And, and the original thinking that was LSD would be good to help us understand schizophrenia because the doctors could have a schizophrenic experience and, 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 and you know, be more em empathic. Um, and then the doctors started taking the medicine and realized, no, this isn't psychosis, this is something else. And they moved on from that paradigm. So I guess open-mindedness would be the key and, and, and realize that, you know, that these drugs deserve, a, a, you know, just a clear-eyed look that's that's not freighted with the moralism and the and the and the kind of um, you know the moral panic that surrounded them uh, in the '60s. So, thanks. Thank you. Hi. Uh, Hi. This has been a great talk. Thanks very much. Um, in terms of open-mindedness, um, my wife and I were just whispering in the audience, and I said, "I like him. He's kind of a skeptic." <laughs> And she said, he's very open-minded. <laughs> and I said, well, he's not so open-minded that his brain falls out. <laughs> so I really appreciate this kind of scientific approach um, that you're taking. I think it's really interesting. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Sam Harris. And I know you're on his podcast recently. Yeah. And I haven't listened to it yet. Um, but, you know, he has a very, very similar stance around um, psychedelics, I think. And he draws a very interesting connection between meditation and um, taking uh, psychoactive drugs. Um, and the connection being kind of this dissolution of the self that yeah. you were talking about, this you know, ego fades away and we see things very subjectively. So I'm just curious how you see, or if you see like the intersection of those things as therapies or as practices, yeah. can they be used, should they be used together? And maybe that's obvious, but how do you see those yeah, kind of play it's a great together? question. It's a great question. So one of the really interesting findings from the research 
When they began doing fMRI imaging of people who were tripping, they would actually like give you an injection of psilocybin or LSD and slide you into the tube, the fMRI tube. Can you imagine? We owe a debt to these volunteers. Um, <laughs> nobody's willing to volunteer for that, I can tell. Um, and they made these images of the brains, uh, and, and they were very surprised to find that one particular brain network was downregulated dramatically. It's something called the default mode network. And it's a real, I had never heard of it. And in fact, the researcher who did this research had to look it up and figure out what was going on. Um, but it's a network that it's in the midline and it connects parts of the cortex, which is, you know, executive function, the evolutionarily most recent, it's, it's what's big in humans is the cortex, to older, deeper regions uh, involved in memory and emotion. And uh, it's a hub in the brain, very important transit hub. And it's a regulator of, of global mental activity. It's, uh, one researcher called it the, the orchestra conductor. Um, this goes offline um, during a, a high-dose psychedelic experience, and it correlates with people's feeling of ego dissolution. So what does the default mode network do? Well, it's involved in self-reflection. It's involved in theory of mind, the ability to attribute mental states to others, very important in moral reasoning and things like that. Uh, it's, involved, it's involved in time travel, the ability to think about the past or the future. And it's involved in something called the experiential or narrative self, um, kind of where we generate the stories of who we are that gives us that sense of continuity over time. Um, at the same time this work was going on at Imperial College London, there was a neuroscientist and psychiatrist at Yale named Judd Brewer who was imaging the brains of very experienced meditators. People with 10,000 hours of meditation, he slid them into the machine and had them meditate. And their brains looked identical. The same networks were being turned off. Um, and so it suggests deep connections between psychedelic experience and meditation. Um, and that uh, I, I interviewed Judd Brewer and, and spent some time in his lab in Massachusetts. He's now at uh, UMass. Um, and he felt that there was a role for psychedelics in kick-starting the meditation process for people, which is historically exactly what happened. I mean, a great number of, of the, the best-known American Buddhists, people like Jack Kornfeld, Joan Halifax, began with psychedelics. And they were looking for a way to, you know, you can't do psychedelics every day. They, they're not a practice. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, and so meditation became the way to achieve similar states of consciousness, egolessness, um, uh, in, in, in everyday life. And, um, you know, I think that the, the, the presence and influence of, of American Buddhism and mindfulness, um, John Kabat-Zinn, too, talked to me about his uh, important psychedelic experiences early on. I think... And, and it is how I've been able to carry forward a lot of what I learned. Um, I mean, it has made me a better meditator. And um, that I, I think once having had a sense, somebody told me last night the Buddhist term. There's a Buddhist term for this. Maybe someone knows it. But having had a sense of the destination that you're trying, you know, where you're trying to get in terms of, I know you're not supposed to strive as a meditator, but... We all do. Um, <laughs> that, um, uh, that having had that, having a glimpse, a sample of that kind of, of consciousness makes it easier to achieve it. So, I, yeah, I think there are very rich possibilities here. So, thank you. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Hi. My, my name is Yogi. Uh, I'm an environmental philosopher, and I have two intertwined questions. 
just last week, um, I organized the 18th annual biosemiotics gathering at UC Berkeley with your uh, colleague, Terence Deacon. Mm -hmm. And in biosemiotics, we basically look at a hermeneutics of biology. So you've said several interesting uh, pieces about you know, um, uh, the dangers of um, approaching these uh, experiences outside of a context and of how microdosing is, you know, could be just part of this workism of a capitalist network, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I'm very curious about your uh, seemingly um, middle-of-the-road stance on science and of, you know, we're talking about psychologists and psychiatrists giving these experiences, but if you went to Latin America and actually dealt with people who have been working with these medicines for thousands of years, uh, they would say, here is the blind leading the blind. So um, Richard Doyle at the um, Penn State University has coined the term ecodelic because he talks about the ecological uh, part of any psychedelic experience as being extremely important. And of course, that's everything that we bring in beforehand historically, but also our lived environment. And as somebody who cares so much for nature, as you and I do, I'm very curious about why you don't go sort of a Isabel Stanger's way of thinking about science um, as part of the problem that's gotten us to this point of mm -hmm. uh, you know, this mental health epidemic that has required these uh, plants and mm -hmm. mushrooms to come back into our lives in order to make us realize that um, this path ultimately of, you know, third phase trials, et cetera, may not be the only way, the only verifiable and valid way to knowledge that is in fact harming our society. Thank you for your question. <laughs> your question is essentially, why don't I agree with your worldview? <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. And I don't know that I don't. I mean, I think you have to read the book to see that I, I do, privileged science in some ways in the book, but the book contains several different ways of looking at a psychedelic, science being one of them, and a really important one in my view, um, because it's, it's yielding a lot of interesting information. Um, it's, science is, is valuable to the extent that it gives us useful information, and it doesn't always. Um, and in all my work, I, I work very hard to layer different perspectives, and you know, I'm technically a science writer. I hold a chair in science journalism at Berkeley, but I actually, until I got that chair, I didn't think of myself as a science writer. I, um, I, 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 I think sometimes the poets get there first, sometimes the philosophers get there first, and that a, a valuable account of anything depends on multiple perspectives. So you'll see there's a, there's a chapter on neuroscience, um, but there are chapters on history, and there are chapters on phenomenology. I mean, the fact is that I talk a lot about the limitations of science in their, it's an inability to penetrate consciousness, right? The subjective experience of what it's like to be you. Science has nothing to say about that. Uh, they know how to turn it off, that's about it. Um, and so you need phenomenology, right? You need people's accounts of what happens. So there's a role for the writer and the poet in understanding the psychedelic experience. So all of which is to say, I'm, I'm, I'm open to what you're saying and, um, and the book does not say that science is the only way to, uh, to understand these experiences or, um, you know, that it's, it's, it's sensitive to the limitations of science as well. So see if you still feel that way after you read it. Thank you. I'm afraid this next question will be the last one uh, so that we have time for people to uh, 
have their books signed downstairs and we stay on schedule. So make it a good one. Make it say, a good one. Won't be like that. <laughs> no question. pressure. That's a question to follow. Um, my, my question for you is, is in your experience coming to, you know, these guided meditations and these guided trip experiences, um, as somebody that's not, you know, coping with loss or, you know, going through dealing with cancer, um, in the integration sessions afterwards, how do you find that it's easy to carry your takeaways into your everyday life going forward? Or do you have some tool that you use to kind of remind yourself of, yeah. you know, what your big takeaway was? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, the one I talked about, you know, I, I went through this with my guide. I, I, I described this experience of ego dissolution. I didn't really describe it in great detail, but um, that was a powerful experience. And the next day I went back and, and met with my guide to talk about it. And I told her what had happened, that I'd realized, oh, there's another ground on which to stand and face life that isn't your ego, um, and that, that you can stand somewhere else. And that was, you know, I thought that was kind of big. And she said, yeah, isn't that worth the price of admission? And I said, yeah, I guess it was. But on the other hand, now my ego, I'm back to baseline. My ego's back in uniform. I'm control. Yeah. So what good was that? And, and that's a big question. How do, you, how do these experiences get carried forward? And she said, um, well, you've had a taste of that other way of being, a somewhat less defended way of being, a somewhat less egocentric way of being, and you can cultivate that. Um, and, and I asked her how, and she said meditation. Um, and that is certainly one way I've, I've worked to cultivate it. But you know, as we understand learning, it's, learning is the exercise of, of circuits in the brain. And, the more, and so you, you have these new circuits that are temporarily created. If you have the book in your lap, look at page 318. <laughs> and you'll see a wiring chart of the brain on a placebo and the brain on psilocybin. And all those lines are in the, in the psychedelic one are new lines of connection between networks, uh, around the edge of the circle are the different brain networks. Thank you. It's wonderful being able to do this. It's yeah. like <laughs> teaching a class in school with a textbook. Um, but the point is, having had that experience of this non-egoic consciousness, that's in my mind somewhere. So the challenge is, how do you exercise it? And the more, it's, it's the same with depression or addiction. You're exercising a negative loop, right? Um, but they're positive loops too. And so the more you think about it, the more you exercise that kind of being, the more it becomes part of you. It becomes something you've learned. Um, that at least is the theory of what, you know, what mental learning is. And so all the psychedelics do is, is t create temporarily new lines, new connections. And then it's up to us to, to exercise them. Thank so you. thank you. Thanks yeah. for your great question. I want to, first of all, thank you all for coming. And secondly, to say three organizations, Point Reyes Books, Mesa Refuge, and Commonweal, uh, contributed to this. So I want to ask you to patronize Point Reyes Books. Yes. I want to ask you to give to Mesa Refuge. And I'd like to ask you to support the new school at Commonweal. What makes this possible is your support. That's how the new school works. So thank you, Michael Pollan, for You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Michael Pollan and Michael Lerner. 
Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.